So we're going to go, God willing, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I certainly don't believe it's an accident that we would be in this text this morning because we're preparing for the Lord's Supper. Sometimes I feel like, and we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, and Pastor Dave and I try our best to let the Lord lead the church rather than us, and most of the time we mess up on that, but at least I do for my part. But we really do want Jesus to lead the church. And sometimes I wonder and, 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 and really and ask the Lord about this, and maybe he'll make some changes in this regard if, if, if the Lord's Supper is not something we should do every Sunday. Um, I know that we can... Uh, consider that and go well you know we might it might become too routine then and it might become too um, you know familiarity might breed contempt um, well you can make the case for that I'm not saying that we're going to do it we'll pray about it you pray about it too and see what the Lord would put on your heart as well we do at least we do it once a month now at least once a month but I think that we have a real uh, narrow view of the Lord's Supper and not only what it means and the significance of the act itself and the spiritual truth that uh, it's founded upon, but what it means to us in a practical sense about the way that we live. Because it's both. That's our faith. Our faith is doctrinal truth that leads to life change and not the other way around. The doctrine is anything, it's life changing and it's important. And uh, belief, as we've talked about time and again before, precedes change. You believe and then change. You don't change and then believe. And our feelings need to be thrown out the window. We've talked about this time and again. That when your feelings don't line up with the truth, go with the truth. Don't feel your way into a new way of believing. Believe your way into a new way of feeling. That the Bible is our life and witness. It is the word of the living God. It's complete and in its original languages it's perfect. There's not a thing wrong with it. It's not contradictory. It's the truth of the living Word of God. And we have it here in front of us. What a rich thing. But I want us to look at this, God willing, this text this morning in light of the Lord's Supper. God willing, Pastor Dave will come up in a few moments and he'll give us a charge. He will share. I don't know what's on his heart to share this morning, but he'll share from the Scriptures and we'll share to participate in the Lord's Supper. First and foremost, you, you need to be a believer. If you're here this morning and uh, you've never repented toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't leave when we do it. Stay here and watch, and we're trusting the Lord will speak to you. Most of you here are professing believers, but it's a it's a family meal, and uh, that's not saying we're trying to exclude anybody. We want you to be included, but until you repent toward God and put your faith in Jesus, you're God's creation, but you're not God's child. And in light of that, we go through the instruction in the Lord's Supper about the Apostle Paul tells us, you know, be careful about this, be reverent about this. Approach it with fear and reverence as, what, as an act of worship that it, it deserves, it screams that we are to, 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 to do that because we're talking about the cross of God's Son. And also, for a believer, a family member, to so examine their lives that if we're in unrepentant sin and we continue to hang on to it, better to let the cup and the bread pass by than to participate in it. And I think we have such a low view of that. We have such a low regard for that. That, you know, um, God made us holy, but it's God's will that we live holy. 
That's maybe not a popular theme nowadays because it means that God's going to mess and gone in your business. It means there's going to be some changes and it's not going to be God who changes. It's going to be you and I. And it's not going to be God who makes adjustments. It's going to be our uh, repentant faith to make adjustments to Him. We constantly want Him to fit into our little agendas. And that's not the way God works. If He's God, He couldn't work that way. He's God. He's God. And we have a little low view, I'm afraid. I think we take the computer screen like we do and we hit that little minimize button and you have a full screen picture of Him in the Word of God and then we just minimize Him and put Him over here. And we start dealing with Him as such. This text encourages us to take this self-examination and I think there's going to be some things that we're going to lift from here. I'm believing, I'm hoping through the Holy Spirit it maybe might challenge the way we think about things and in our interaction with other people. Not change because it's the message this morning, but change because it's the Word of God. So, in reverence and respect for the fact that it is the Word of God, we're about to read it. Would you stand with me if you're physically able while we do read it? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not as is not even named among the Gentiles. What is that immorality? That a man has his father's wife and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I indeed, as absent in the body and present with the spirit, have already judged it as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly, you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle, verse 9, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or with extortioners, or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. Verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. That's the word of the living God. Maybe have a seat. Thank you so much for standing.
appreciate that. But ask the Lord to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we need you so desperately. Please help me. Um, the first Corinthian church, the church in Corinth was a mess. You know this, and you've heard this time and again. There's actually a church in the place, in the county that I come from, named Corinth Baptist Church. And I thought of all the churches that you could name your church after, you would pick Corinth Baptist Church. I would never name a church Corinth Baptist Church. Because what you're saying up front is, is we're going to be divisive, sectarian. We're going to be drunkards, and we're going to get drunk at the Lord's table. Uh, we're going to be sexually immoral. Uh, we're going to be um, pretty much, in practice, idolaters. That's what you're saying. And so the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, as you know, he said, I had some steaks cooked up for you on the grill. I went outside, cooked up some steak. I called Pastor Dave last night, and he said he was out on the grill getting together some pork chops. Praise the Lord. I was hoping he'd bring some this morning. He's out there cooking up a steak, and he said, I've got some spiritual meat for you, but I found out how you're acting, and reports are getting back to me how you're acting, and I had to put away the steaks because you're not ready for them. You're not ready for what I had for you. I've got to give you milk. And I've got to say things like you would. I'm talking to a child. Don't sue one another. Quit being ugly one another. Hug and make up and say you're sorry. The very things I have to do with my children 700 times a day. And say, "Be tell Andrew that you're sorry you hit him in the shin and that you won't do it again and hug and make up. That's how he, that he had to talk to this church. Doesn't mean that there's not deep doctrine in this church, in this letter. There certainly is. But he had to treat them for the, with, as the children that they were acting like. The immature children they were acting like. And he says this. He said, you know what? I found out that there's sexual immorality among you. And it's so, it's so perverse. It's so sickening. It's so awful. That I don't even know in Gentile circles if I've heard of this. I mean, Gentiles would be ashamed of this. Gentiles meaning not you and I, even though we're Gentiles. But just the world. He said, you know, it's so perverse that here's what's going on. I've heard that there's a man among you that's having relations with his father's wife. And we know this is stepmother. It's amazing, but the political tide in the United States... I believe, says more about the shape of our country than it does about our leaders. You know, you can look at a leader and tell by what they believe and what they advance pretty much who they are. But it's the people that elect them <laughs> that cast the most doubt on where they are. And, 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 and the Apostle Paul is basically saying, you know what, that's rank and file evil. We know that's evil. Nobody would pretend to defend the immorality, any kind of sexual immorality, I hope among you, but certainly nobody would defend the fact that this is okay. And this says more about you, church at Corinth, than it does about the man who's doing it. And here's what it says about you. Here's, here's your response. You're puffed up about it. Let me give you a modern day application of that. We're tolerant. We're tolerant. Boy, if we've ever lived in an age and time in which tolerance is celebrated, it's now. 
Tolerance is nothing but a fancy word for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's all it is. It's recycled paganism is all it is. It's got a new label. It frames it in a different way. The devil is a smart guy. He's not omniscient, but he's smart. And I, you have to credit him with this much. He knows this. If it's not broke, don't fix it. If those lies have worked before, let's recycle them in another label. They'll work again. And the Bible says in the last days, his deception will get even worse. But he says, here's the deal. Here's your, your, your arrogant. That's a word that you could use in that place. You're arrogant about it. We are a tolerant group of people. Grace, grace, grace. We are tolerant. The love of God has so permeated our hearts that we, rather than being brokenhearted over this kind of evil, this public disgrace, and public sham of a profession of faith that doesn't back up with action, but rather this life that is the total antithesis of the faith that we profess and the life-changing power of the gospel and the holiness of Jesus Christ as coming from God to us, this sham that's going on right in front of everybody that everybody knows about it, we're tolerant of it because we're ministers and perpetrators of grace. You can mark it down that the pathology of a false teacher almost always includes this. They use grace as a license to sin. If the Bible is clear about anything, it's clear about this. That the, that the grace of God is the doorway and the motivation for holy living. If somebody approaches God and says, Well, you guys preach grace so much so. They, I heard a prominent evangelical leader. If I called his name, you'd know exactly who he was, just like that. And a friend of mine who knows him, and this guy said to him years before he had some moral problems of his own, he said, you, you, uh, you guys preach this easy grace stuff, and you preach grace all the time, and that you the once saved, always saved, and saints persevere. He said, if I believe that kind of doctrine, I just go out and live the way I want to. And the friend said, you just revealed your heart. If you've been changed by the gospel, you will sin all you want to. But I can tell you this, your want to is all different want to than it used to be. I can tell you this right now. If you're a real believer and you've genuinely been changed by the gospel, I'll assure you of this. There's, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. You don't want to live a reckless, sinful life. And you're puffed up about it. That's your response. And, 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 and rather than mourning about it, rather than being contorted in the Spirit, not to say that this guy should be killed, not to say that we hate him, but I can tell you this. We do not endorse what he's doing. And rather than mourning about it, what he has done, that this deed might be taken away from you, you sit idly by and tolerate it. That happens in church in America every single day. Let's make this clear. As long as you and I are a part of the church, there will be sin in the church. Okay? The old adage, that if you find a perfect church, don't join it because it will become imperfect. The moment that I join it. I understand that we are wretched sinners saved by God's grace and we're now called children and saints where we used to be ain'ts, but now we're saints. I understand that. And we're positionally made right with God. And we're on this journey that our lives of what we profess, hopefully, is consistently coming into conformity with who we are. That's called practical sanctification. And that process, we want to grow in that. But when somebody is in unrepentant sin and they refuse to let go of it, 
And that sin is so much so that it's known church-wide to the point that it got to the Apostle Paul. And this kind of immorality was, was tolerated under the guise of grace. Then they've misinterpreted what grace is all about. And I tell you another thing too. Is what they've done and what they did by tolerating this is they became culpable. It's like it's like, a, and and I have I have experience in this in my own family, so I know a little bit about this, and I have experience in, in ministry. But it's almost like having a family member who has um, a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction, and you continue to give them money so they can feed the addiction. And there comes a point one day that the world calls and uses this word enabler, but the Bible would say you're culpable. And what he's saying to them is, your tolerance of this without you doing anything about it means that you don't love the guy who's doing it, you don't love your church, and you certainly don't display love for your God. He said, what, what should have been your response? You should have rent your garments. You should have mourned that he who had done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit. I haven't been there physically, but I've heard about it, and I've heard enough about it, and I've already judged it as though I were there, and that he who has done this deed, I've made a judgment on this. And in the name of Jesus, who is the head of the church? In the name of Jesus, the chief executive officer of the church, I'm saying, not in my name, the Apostle Paul says, you don't have to listen to me, but you have to listen to the head. When you're gathered together along with my spirit, in other words, with my endorsement, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what this says? This says that the likelihood of somebody who professes to know Christ, who's living in immorality, the likelihood that they would repent and get right with God is enhanced by them being outside the fellowship of the church rather than remaining comfortably within it. That's what that means. You know why the church in America is so weak? The church in America is so weak because we've completely lost our fear of God. And we tolerate and endorse what God does not tolerate and endorse. What he's saying is this. Exercise church discipline with this guy. I want you to publicly bring him before the church and if he does not repent, he needs to be excommunicated from the church. He needs to be taken off the roll. And in taking off the roll, you're, you're, you're turning him over to Satan. And Satan is going to be allowed by God Permitted by God because you can't touch anybody without it going through God's permissive hand to sift him and to go after him and in hopes that that he will get to the end of himself and that he'll repent toward a holy God and you can restore him to fellowship. What do we do? Well, they're in church. They're under the teaching of the gospel. They're in the church now. They're in the church. I want them in the church. I've dealt with this with other churches. Or somebody will leave a church and go to another church. And I've confronted other pastors and said, listen, we've got a problem. Come together and let's try to work this out. Let's try to solve this. Hey, they're in church. I want you to know something. I'm going to preach it for the way it is. If you are doing something that's destroying your life spiritually, and I don't call you to repentance as a pastor or as a fellow believer, I don't. Love you. 
I don't know what the motive is, but I can tell you this, it's not love. Because the Bible says that love rejoices not in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. And in waiting for somebody to move to the truth, it will bear all things, it will believe all things, it will hope all things, it will endure all things because love never fails. But it will never rejoice over that which destroys another. It just doesn't do it. It can't do it. We don't love each other. The Apostle Paul said if he's delivered outside the protection, the endorsement, the enablement of the church, there is more of a likelihood that he will repent there is more of a likelihood that through the destruction and through the exposure that he'll have outside the protection and the spiritual covenant community, this more than likely he'll repent that he stays under a false pretense within it. But we'd rather have numbers. And the way you assess the spiritual health of a church, and I'm not saying this because I'm trying to apologize for this being a small church. It's a small church, and that's not my business, that's God's business. And that doesn't bother me in the least at all. And God knows what I'm saying. I can stand before Him and say that in truth. And so let Him just deal with that. But I can tell you this. I, I want it to be as, it'll be what God, God sends people here, not me or Pastor Dave. But I can tell you this. Nickels and noses is usually the way a church is measured nowadays rather than holiness. And I believe that the Scriptures scream out to say that the way a church ought to be assessed is whether or not it's holy. He says this. Deliver now. We'll get back to that in a moment. He said, your glory in verse 6 is not good. We've talked about this before. We go into the closet with what we ought to be going out of the closet with and we go out of the closet what we're staying in the closet with nowadays in America. They're coming out of the closet with perversion and we're going in the closet with the gospel. Shame on us. But he said, you know what? Your glorying is not good. This is a publicly known thing. You ask anybody in the church, yeah, you know what's happening over there? So-and-so is, 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 has an immoral relationship with his father's wife. It was known throughout the church. What did that mean? It meant the pastor of Corinth said, you're okay. You're all right with God. Your profession of faith must be valid. We're going to validate it by our inactivity. And by so doing so, we endorse you. What you're doing. Because after all, I'd rather please the crowd than please God. That's what he was saying. Your glorying is not good. Listen, don't get out of balance with this and don't send me a nasty email. I'm a grace preacher. I know that we're saved by grace through faith. I am evidence of salvation by grace through faith. I ought to be in hell right now. And I know that the only reason that I'm not in hell is because of the work of God, the atoning work through His blessed Son, Jesus. And I received that work by faith. He's the one that prompted the gift of repentance. He's the one that gave me the faith to believe. He gets all the credit. I get none. And I'm a satisfied customer. So don't say that we're trying to pervert grace. Grace is a supernatural thing that we don't really understand because we hardly ever see it in life. It's a wonderful thing. I'm a grace preacher because the Bible teaches grace. But I can tell you this. We are not by God's will and His grace and sovereign plan and His mercy not going to abuse it to say that it is an excuse for unholy living. If anything... It is the doorway. The Bible says it teaches us to deny ungodliness. Grace is a teacher. It is a tutor that leads to holy living. Titus chapter 2. 
He said, your going is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Miss Madge, I love you, Miss Madge. You're such a sweet lady. I'm so glad I can hang out with you. I'd pay to do it, but you let me do it for free. Don't ever go to charge it. <laughs> Miss, Miss, Miss Madge, every, you know, Dave, Pastor Dave, I'm sorry. I mean, or whatever the plans are. But here, um, Miss Madge always makes this bigger piece. You see it? Of the unleavened bread. She makes this for us every time we come together for the Lord's Supper. I'm so grateful for that. And it's unleavened bread. This is what we'll use, God willing, in the next few moments. And there are those of you here who can tell me more about this than I know, I'm sure. You can tell me more about pretty much anything I'm talking about this morning than I know. But let me just tell you this. I know enough to know this. The leaven is put into bread to make it rise, correct? And it's not just a little part of the bread that does it. It spreads all throughout it. It's like I've talked about time and again before. And if those of you who've heard this before, just indulge me. My dad's cancer, when it took him out. My dad died of cancer in 19, uh, 2007. He had lung cancer. His cancer was all through every canal of his, of, his, of his lungs. Every one of them. And if it was a tumor, if it was just a tumor and it was in one little lobe, we'd go in there and cut that thing out. You know, your lung has lobes. And you could go in there and cut that section out that had the tumor in it, yank it out, and we'd be done with it. He'd probably still be alive today. But the doctor said, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't operate on it. Why? Why can't you operate on it? Because look at the x-ray. It's all over the place. It's everywhere. Such is the nature of sin. Sin is not a tumor that's isolated that you could just carve out if left undone. It is a tumor, and once that tumor grows, it will grow all throughout the body, just like this leaven. The Bible, every time leaven is mentioned in the Bible, it is a picture of sin. And that's the pathology of sin. Once it goes unchecked in our lives and it goes unchecked in the body of Christ, it doesn't just isolate itself and have its way there and just sit there so it's easy to deal with and cut out and remove. You leave it there, and I'll tell you what it'll do. It'll get in the bloodstream, and it'll get in every other capillary and artery, and it'll go all throughout the body, and if left undone, it will kill you. This is the reason why the salt has lost its savor in the church in the United States, and the light's been doused, because we don't live any differently than the world lives. Why do you want to lay Jesus on top of them? When they got everything else on top of them, when it's made no difference for you. Let others see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus. He said, if you leave this alone, it's the same thing as taking leaven and putting it at the leaven of sin, the leaven of sin. See, this is unleavened bread. Jesus, body, unleavened. He was sinless. He had no sin. It's a picture of his body. And the leaven, if left undone throughout the church. So let me tell you something. Can I give you a word of encouragement as well? Your sin and my sin cannot be carried out in isolation. In other words, you cannot contain sin. You've heard the saying before, and I've used it before. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And extract from you a price higher than you want to pay. And if it's left alone in the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul says it will teem throughout the body. And it will be like the cancer that took my dad out. It will go all over the place. And you won't be able to carve it out by that time. It will be so pervasive and it will be all over the place. You won't be able to do any carving. Carve it out now while it's isolated. Carve it out now because not only is it paying a price for the guy who's perpetrating it, it's paying a price for the entire body. I have a responsibility to, you, to Jesus and how I live. And that manifests itself in a responsibility to you. You have the same toward me. Not as a pastor, but as a believer. It matters how we live. It matters how we live. Therefore, purge. Look at that. 
Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. You are unleavened right now. You are full of sin. For indeed, look at the analogy. They're no, analogies are no good unless they divorce, if, if they divorce themselves from Christ. He's pointing to the Lord's Supper. Christ, our Passover, our Passover was sacrificed. He's the unleavened Passover. Therefore, let us keep this, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness and sin, but with the unleavened bread of a sincerity and truth. The sinless one's body was broken like this on Calvary and was spilt out for you and I. Not so that we could continue to indulge and live holy lives, but so that he can make us holy through the merits of his, his life and work and then come and dwell us by the Holy Spirit so that we can walk holy. Now here's, here's where, we're, here's where our theology has gone awry. Look what he says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. As far as I know, as far as I know, now listen to me, you challenge me on this and that's fine. Send me an email about this and we'll talk about it. As far as I know in Scripture, when church discipline is exercised, it's one of three reasons. One, sexual immorality. Or immorality. Immorality is the one reason. That's what they were dealing with here. Number two, would be divisiveness. If somebody in the church is spreading gossip and they're challenged and they continue to move into it and they're dividing people over evil suspicion and and and, and, and bitterness and they continue to just to, to continue to advance that, then that's a that's a, they're a candidate for church discipline. Number three is doctrinal error. If a doctrine is advanced in the church and taught and takes root and those who would advance it need to be dealt with in loving and gentle ways. I'm not talking about being ugly to somebody. But Jesus said this. It's church discipline because this fits with Matthew 18. Because look in verse 4. He said, The name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus said? Anything you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Anything you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When God and the church act authoritatively according to his word, heaven sits on the corner of heaven and listens and watches and binds everything that the church does. He said that's why there's power associated with this. And we'll see it in a minute. Look what he said. Don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Don't be in fellowship. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people with this world or with covetousness or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you knew they go out of the world. This is where we miss it in the modern day church. This is what we do. We habitually do this. The Bible says this. And that's what the Bible says. Now listen. If you take exception to this, all I'm asking is go before the text and if what I'm sharing with you this morning is not consistent with God's Word, not only this text, but maybe parallel text you might find, if you'll tell me and prove that to me, next week I'll repent. I mean that too. I've had to do that before. And I will do it. I don't, hey, I don't want to be right in line with the Word of God because what I think doesn't matter. But let me tell you this. Here's what it says. Don't keep company with somebody who's sexually immoral. But the Apostle Paul said, there's a qualifier here now. I'm not talking about sexually immoral people who are of the world. Let me share something with you. Major revelation. And we've said it a billion times before in this church. Lost people act lost. Isn't that genius? Lost people act lost. 
Shame on us for being appalled by their lostnessness. You know what we do? We're appalled at the lost actions of unsaved people and we endorse the lost actions of saved people. That's what we do. So that's what the text is saying. Here's what we wind up doing. This is what we do habitually in church. We hang out with and we're in fellowship with believers who are in sin and are unrepentant over it and we retreat from lost people. And the Bible says we're supposed to do the opposite. The Bible says you're not to be in fellowship. Correct me if I'm wrong now and I'm not being funny. I mean it. It, I said in my epistle, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Well, you go, wow. If you stop right there, you go, man, that's going to cut a lot of people out of my life. There's, hey, there's some people in the cubicle I can't have anything to do with. There's some people, ah, uh, the Apostle Paul said, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute now. I'm not, I don't mean sexually immoral people of this world, lost people, or with people who are covetousness, who are of this world, or extortioners, or idolaters. Because if you do that, the Apostle Paul picks up on our argument, what we would think if it didn't get any more instruction. If you do that, you're going to leave. You're going to go out in the woods somewhere and hug pine trees and see if some parts are edible. And you've got to, you've got to get out on your own and live like a bear because it's all around you. I'm not saying we're in the world, friends, but we're not of it. But we're not supposed to retreat. You know who we're supposed to retreat from? Verse 11. Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone, watch this, named a brother. Isn't it interesting that he would put it that way? Named a brother. It doesn't say anyone who is a brother. It says anyone who named a brother. Because you know what? He's leaving out the, he's leaving out the option that they might indeed not be. Named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetousness, an adulterer, a reviler. You know these definitions, sexually immoral. Isn't that self-explanatory? Covetousness. The Apostle Paul identifies covetousness in Romans chapter 7 as saying if there was no law against covetousness, how would I know that I'm covetous? And the Apostle Paul gets us insight into the greatest sin that challenged his life and it was that of covetousness. He excelled in Judaism because he coveted Men's approval, he coveted money, he coveted status. That's, that was his sin. And you know what? Guess what? The sin of covetousness is not easy to detect. There could be covetous people in here this morning. Right now. And it doesn't mean that you've got to have a lot of stuff. It just means that you'll do anything to get a lot of stuff. Or maybe you resent other people who have what you ought to have. But the law exposes that. Not so that we can obey the law so that we can turn to Christ who can give us the power to obey it through repentant faith. Or an idolater? Do you think idolatry is absent in the modern day professing church? Do you think covetousness is absent in the modern day professing church? Do you think sexual immorality is absent in the modern day professing church? Do you hear the statistics and you hear the things going on? I told you, I heard MacArthur say one time, I was just listening to him and just happened to be listening to him, just happened to be catching him and he said something that shocked me. He said they say that the divorce rate in the church is identical to the one outside the church. He said, I vehemently deny that. And I was going, where do you minister? What egg did you crawl out of under? In ministry, I had to say in my years of ministry, I had to say that the greatest threat and the greatest problem facing the modern day church is the breakup of the home. He said, did you hear what I said? In the professing church, it might be identical. But in the real church, it's lower. 
I said, okay, thank you for qualifying that. I agree with that. But how do you know if it is or not, if it's not dealt with in churches? What do we do? We pride ourselves in the fact that we tolerate divorce inside evangelical churches. Now, there are divorced people in here right now, and you know what I mean by that. Some of you got divorced before you got saved. Some of you are repentant over the fact that you got saved and you got divorced and you've been freed and made free. And you're not trying to ask the church to endorse it. What I'm talking about is those who would do that and then expect the church to endorse it and we comply with it. Can I ask you a question? What greater division could be perpetrated in life that's greater than a divorce? The two shall become what? One flesh. When you divorce, that is the greatest act of division in a church. And you know what we do? We expect the world to buy into the fact that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and He has made us ministers of reconciliation. Well, how's it going with you? Well, our church is full of people who are going through divorces right now. God was in Christ Reconcile, reconcile? Do you know what the word reconcile means? Do you people know what the word reconcile means? Do you have any idea what the... I know, I'm not a Christian. But it seems like to me it means you take warring factions that are against one another and you put them back together. And you're telling me that your Lord can do that for me with God whom I'm not seen and you cannot live with one another. Let me say something. We as Christians do this all the time. We retreat from lost people. Oh, there come some lost people. Ah! <laughs> and I'm going to rub off on us. Hey, better to be lost and honest about it than to be saved and be dishonest about it. I'd rather you be hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And because you are, you make me sick. First Kings, Elijah stands on Mount Carmel after a three-year drought for which he's blamed. And it's King Ahaz and his apostasy and his uh, feminist wife that promulgated that and led to that. He stands on Mount Carmel and what does he ask her? He said, how long are you going to be caught between two opinions? If God's God, worship Him. If it's Baal's God, worship Him. For, for goodness sake, slap on a jersey. Joe jokes around and tells me before, there's nothing in the middle of the road. It said red stripes and dead armadillos. Read the New Testament carefully. You will find it is not the adulterous pagan that's the greatest threat to the church. You will find that. It is not that. It's the middle of the road people that are the greatest threat to the church. It is. The danger that you and I face this morning is we're liable to get smug and say it's not me. All I'm asking is maybe let the Holy Spirit reveal to you maybe it might be you. Do you know what somebody who's in an unrepentant sin, known sin in the church, is asking the church to do? Let's define it. Let's just be honest about it. You know what he's asking the church to do? I want you to bow down to my God. And you know what, dude? You know what? Churches do that all the time. 
we'll bow down and pay homage to your God. And we love you. Grace, grace, God. That's an abuse of grace. That's not grace. That's not grace. Verse 12. What have I had to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Compare that with what he just said. In verse 3. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged. You know what? You're talking about abuse of scripture. Do you know what a major tenet of New Age teaching is? Don't judge! Don't judge! Don't judge! Don't judge! Wayne Dyer, he's a New Age guru. Don't ever listen to him. I have. It didn't mess me up. <laughs> but just tune in just to see his junk. Don't judge! Don't judge! Don't judge! Don't judge! Matter of fact, you can't judge because there's no basis upon which to judge because there's no such thing as truth. Because truth is relative. And nothing is absolutely true. I mean, nothing is nothing can be judged because truth is truth for you and it might be different for me. There's no such thing as absolute truth. If there's no such thing as absolute truth, then nothing is absolutely true. Their farce falls under the weights of their own arguments. Don't judge! Don't judge! Don't judge! Don't judge! You know what that is? That's an affront to this truth. God has appointed one man to judge the world and his name is Jesus Christ. There is judgment to come. I had somebody tell me, I had a rebellious teenager tell me this one time. This is an abuse. Here it is. Don't judge. We're not to 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 judge. That sounds great if it weren't for the Bible. But the Apostle Paul said, I've made a judgment here. And he says in verse 12, I'm calling upon you to make one. As a church, you're to judge this. The teaching is this, and the abuse lies here. I can't judge your motives. Listen to me. I cannot judge your motives. I have no permission to judge your motives. But I have an admonition to judge your actions. I am to judge your actions, and you're to judge mine. So away with that stuff. Don't judge. No, only God knows the heart. But the church is called upon to judge action. And he said, we don't judge the outsiders. We don't have any permission to do that, but we are to judge those who are inside. But those who are outside, God judges. That's up to God. But He expects His church. Can you imagine that? He's turned that over to His church. And He expects His church to judge that. We've got pastors nowadays getting a divorce and expecting the whole church to go along with it and comply. And the whole church goes along with it and they're complicit. They might as well have gotten a divorce themselves. And look what happens. It says just Here's what you do. You judge outside. Outsiders God judges, but inside. And what are you to do? If he remains unrepentant. If he remains unrepentant, you are to put away from yourself the evil person. And everybody goes, ooh. Is that New Testament Christianity? Yeah. That's New Testament Christianity. That's the New Testament. That's 1 Corinthians 5. That's not Amos. It would be okay if it was. It's not Hosea. It's not Obadiah. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, we've lost our fear of God. And as Pastor David has quoted Henry Blackaby before, you lose your fear of God, you lose your hatred and fear of sin. They're one and the same, aren't they? I think you need to analyze your relationships, don't you? 
The Bible says you're supposed to be careful about who you hang around with. If you hang around with a professing believer who's living like the devil, you need to, you need to divest yourself of that relationship. Go find you a lost pagan somewhere and invite them over to dinner. Is that inconsistent with this text? Is it? Is it? It's not. It's not inconsistent with this text. It is the spirit of this text. Guess what? Jesus listened from heaven. Two or three are gathered together in my name. And you do something. You bind something or you lose something. You judge this sin. And I, I'll go operative. I'll start operating. I'll, I'll recognize. This is the authority that God has given His church. We don't abuse that, but that's what He's given this church. And He says, I recognize that. You know why it happened? We know from 2 Corinthians, you know what happened? God repented. And He was restored back into the fellowship. That was the objective all along. But no, what we want to do is we want to tolerate it under the guise of love. That is suppression of truth and unrighteousness. The Bible says that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know why we've lost our boldness? It's because most of the people who are called upon to judge this are in unrepentant sin themselves. You're a little less bold to deal with it if you're living like the devil too. Because you're going, oh, if they just knew what was going on with me. They just knew what my computer looked like. They just knew my thoughts. I, for one, wouldn't want my thoughts put up on that screen this morning. You'd run me out on a rail. What about yours? This is the way we're acting. This is the self-examination that we're called. That fellowship. This is a fellowship meal. I want you to know something. Aiken, and we'll close. Aiken sin. What do we know about God? Attributes of God. The three of them that we know about. What are they? He's om, omniscient. What does that mean? Knows everything, right? He's omnipresent. Present. He's everywhere. What's that? One? Omnipotent. What does that mean? No limits. They go into the promised land. They have a supernatural victory at Jericho. All they do is walk around the walls. And it falls. God's bad to the bone, isn't he? Isn't that cool? That's a saying that means he's good. <laughs> I just love that story because God just showed out, you know, took those walls down in front of those pagan people and they went, whoa, we picked the wrong team. They go to Ai, a little puny town, kind of like where I came from. Three red lights, only which two of which work full time. And they go, they got complacent and, uh, and they thought they could pick Ai off with no problem. You know what happens? They go in there and they get defeated scores of families come back and dad gets killed and fathers don't come home and children are left fatherless. You know the story. Joshua goes before the Lord. He prays. The only time in the scripture I can remember that God ever interrupts somebody's prayer. <coughs> Stop it. There's no sense in praying. Let's cut to the chase. There is sin in the camp. I told you to destroy everything in there. I told you. I didn't take you. I said don't take any booty from Jericho. Don't do it. Don't obey, quasi-obey. Don't halfway obey because that's disobedience. Just obey. And there's sin in the camp. Somebody has taken something out of there. You know the story. What do you know about God? He's omniscient, omnipresent. 
omnipotent. Okay? So, what happens? God says, we're going... And he said, Jerry, you need to find it. You need, you need to expose it. Well, what does he do? He calls the people together, right? The whole nation. Here they are. Two and a half million people, they say. He says, okay, uh, separate them now by clan. And he keeps editing things down. Do you think that was because God was up in heaven scratching his surface and going, and scratching his head going, man, I'd be glad we get this, this, uh, this uh, culling process over with because I can't wait to find out who it was. And so they keep limping and they keep going down. Imagine what it must have been like to be aching. It's one of the most heart-wrenching stories in all of the Bible because of what happened to him. And they get closer to him and closer to him and closer to him. And he's got to be figuring, you know. And, and he's, he's not stepping up. He's got to be figuring, man. He's, he's, he's sure he's going to nail me. He's going to nail me. And sure enough, he does. And it's you. What happens to his family? Do you remember what happened to his family? How many of them? All of them. What happened to his possessions? Burn in the valley of Jezreel. Right there in that valley, his entire family was killed because of, because of his sin. Let me ask you a question. God's what? He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Do you think God was doing that so that God could identify the sin or was he giving Achan a chance to repent of it? See, here's the principle. If you judge the sin, it'll save God from having to do it. We're about to take the cup. And I know we're running late. But I want to say this. We're about to take the cup. And did you know in effect, in effect, the Lord's Supper is a lot of things. The Lord's Supper is big. The Lord's Supper is big. It's big. The body and the blood of Christ and the symbolism of a reality is a physical symbolism of a physical reality because Jesus did indeed die on the cross and his blood was shed for you and I. And he was bodily raised from the dead three days later. And we celebrate that with the Lord's Supper. But you know what? Let's expand it a little bit. It's your opportunity this morning that if you're harboring sin like Achan did, God's given you an opportunity to judge it before he has to. See, we can't say tongue-in-cheek. Now, you know, sift it through. Is there anything that just you and God know about? Is there adultery in your heart, but yet you're at the outside faithful to your wife or husband, but yet there's adultery in your heart? Are you covetous? Are you robbing God in tithes and offerings? That's covetousness. You understand that? Children, you disobey your mother and father and dishonor them? That's sin. If you're a Christian... You need to repent of that today. If you're not willing to repent of that, you need to pass this cup. God's given you an opportunity. You see the glory and graciousness of God. You want to talk about grace? This is grace. Here's grace. Grace is God didn't step right there and go, wham, and take Achan out because he could have done it and he knew who it was that did it. But he gave him an opportunity. I don't know how the narrative would have turned out. I don't know. I don't know if it would have spared his life. I don't know. I don't know. None of us know. And I know this. That's why God did that. So he's given us an opportunity to judge the sin before he has to. Dear ones, dear ones, God loves you. He loves you as a believer. He demonstrated it on the cross of Calvary. And we celebrate Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
But we also must celebrate Romans 3.25 because Romans 3.25 said God demonstrated his righteousness when he offered up his son on the cross. He's a loving God, but he's also holy. He's just. He's both. Now, before we take this cup, and Dave, we could probably move right on into it. Pastor Dave, before we take this cup, you have this wide open opportunity from heaven to judge the sin before God does. Paul said, you know what? You guys are so abusing these. You're, so, you're living so loose. Some of you are dying prematurely because of your attitude at the Lord's table. I'm taking you out. It's all, wait a minute now, that's an Old Testament God. Corinthians. Corinthians, 1 John chapter 5. There is a sin that leads to death. We don't know what it is. But there is sin that leads to death. There is. And just like he delayed judgment on Achan, he delays judgment on his children. He's long-suffering. But if you need to repent this morning, you're going to repent. I, I beg you, in the name of Jesus, repent. If you're not willing to repent, you want to hang on to it, pass that cup. Pass the, and nobody's going to look at you with some eye of scorn. If they do, they're outside God's will. I can tell you this, I've passed the cup before. I flat have. And I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you. I try to practice what I preach some of the time. And I can tell you this, I've had to pass it before. If you need to pass the cup, pass the cup. But you know what you can do? You can repent this morning and joyfully take it. You know what happens then? Then you get everything out of this act of worship that God intended you to get. It's everything it ought to be. It's not routine. It can't be routine if you're walking with Jesus. It cannot. Go on with the idea that from here you can pre content, that you could do this too much. That's just not true. If you're not walking right, you can do it too much. But if you're walking right, and you're walking uprightly, God withholds no good thing for the man or woman who walks uprightly. Amen.